ready? Born ready. favorite political podcast where the party at this is your go-to pod to find out what's happening in atlanta georgia and in national politics i'm your host saba long we've got another great show for you so by the way i hope you are taking advantage of the discounts on chocolates and flowers from over the weekend uh now let me tell you the city of atlanta got a great valentine's day gift in the form of Speaker of the House, Republican David Ralston. What did he do? So Ralston pretty much single-handedly killed the Buckhead cityhood movement. There will not be a divorce, at least not this year. Now, it doesn't mean that it's over, uh, but because he killed it for this, this particular legislative session, it does give... Mayor Andre Dickens and the Atlanta City Council a year to figure out how to make Buckhead feel special enough to stay. Now, I think this is a really remarkable show of bipartisan support to kill something that's pretty controversial in a high stakes election year. So the day before Speaker Ralston said said that he was going to kill the bill, the Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan also formally came out against Buckhead Cityhood. Now, he had mentioned before that he was not, he didn't like explicitly say he was against it, but he hinted that he was against it, but he formally came out against it. And then that gave Ralston the cover to go ahead and kill it. Um, Now it's important to note, Jeff Duncan is not running for reelection. He is an anti-Trump Republican, and he's been pushing hard for a new version of the Republican party, which would include a clean break from Trumpism. Speaker Ralston is also not necessarily part of the Trump train. So, by the way, I think there are, I guess, three scenarios in what can happen in the 22 elections this year. So, number one, the Trump-backed candidates win the primary and then go on to win the general election against Democrats. Number two, the Trump-backed candidates win the primary and then go on to lose in the, in the general against the Democrats. Or number three, the Trump back the Trump back candidates lose the primary, and then it's going to be a really tight, you know, too close to call on who ends up winning between the current Republicans and the Democrats. But ultimately, the question of the day is who's in the year is whose coattails are longer, Donald Trump or Stacey Abrams. So next on our docket today, American children are the political football of this year, of 2022. So from mass to critical race theory, there's a debate that's happening across the country. And I'm going to keep reminding you of this. I've mentioned that in probably three different episodes now that the architect of Trump's campaign, Steve Bannon, said the way that they will win is that they will change the country through the schools. So there's a bill in the Georgia State Senate to ban schools from requiring vaccines, 
all vaccines. Now, the sponsor of the bill said he's just focused on banning requirements for the coronavirus vaccine, but the current version of his bill does not mention COVID. And the Georgia uh, health, uh, the person who leads the health department has come out and said, you know, we need to, this is very dangerous and it could bring back measles, mumps, and some of those other diseases that you and I have never had to deal with. Um, but we'll see what if that sponsor of the bill does indeed make clear that this is only against coronavirus. Oh, I just thought it was going to be loud. Okay. Um, there's also going to be a bill uh, introduced on behalf of Governor Brian Kemp to stop schools from requiring masks. Now, he's couching this as this is a choice for parents, which I think is kind of smart communications because it's not saying we're not going after the schools. We're telling the parents that they should have the choice, right? They have the right to decide if their child is going to wear a mask or not. Now, the reason Governor Kemp is doing this is he's in a primary. His opponent, David Perdue, a former United States senator, senator went after him for not ending or doing something further to end mass mandates in school. Um, so that's just another bill that's related to schools. And then the third one, uh, the legislative session in this session, state Republican lawmakers have filed at least four bills in Georgia focused on how race is taught in schools. Take a listen. And new at six, a bill that would stop educators from teaching concepts like critical race theory advancing out of a state house subcommittee today, despite strong objections from some lawmakers and the public. And it is one of several bills right now backed by Georgia conservatives who are up for election this year. 11 Alive's Doug Richards at the state capitol as the measure was debated today. We see a lot of bills here at the Capitol nowadays that advance on strictly party line votes. And this bill that would restrict school teachers from teaching a little too much about race relations is one of them. Those kids are kids. They should not be political pawns for anybody. Republican Will Wade is behind the bill that would restrict the teaching of racial concepts that he describes as divisive. I really still do not understand what brought us here. Critics asked repeatedly what problem Wade was trying to solve. This is a proactive piece of legislation. Oh. Wade said politically charged media have heightened racial tensions, which he says are reaching into Georgia classrooms. A handful of backers agreed. No child in America today should be made to feel guilty uh, for things that they did not commit. I will not allow a child, regardless of their skin color, to believe the system is rigged against them because of the way they look. But critics say the rigged system is real and that it's okay if children learn about it. This is just the biggest slap in the face to history and everything that black people and people who have supported us in going forward into progressing into a stronger nation have fought for. The bill uses language like divisive concepts and race scapegoating to curb the teaching of race relations and orders school boards to create a complaint resolution policy for parents if they don't like what's being taught. 
Um, I'm concerned that this bill starts by defining and prohibiting a series of concepts that would be common in any class discussion about race or identity. We should teach about race and racism the same way we teach about math and chemistry as accurately as we can. At the end of the meeting, Democrats declined to make arguments against passage of the bill, probably because they knew that on this Republican subcommittee in an election year, passage would be a fait accompli. At the Capitol, Doug Richards, 11 Alive News. It's safe to say that there will be some version of these bills uh, that will pass this session. And this is all election year antics. Now, by the way, while folks are so caught up in all of this, they're missing a massive crisis at our door across the country, including in Georgia. Teachers are quitting in droves. They're sick of it. So take a listen to this clip from a Florida TV station that explains just how bad this is. More than half of the nation's teachers say they will leave the profession earlier than they originally planned, and burnout is the main reason. That's the result of a recently released poll from the National Education Association. News for Jack's digital reporter Travis Gibson looks into the issue and how it's affecting local school districts. Teachers around the country are feeling overworked and underappreciated, especially since the start of the pandemic. The National Education Association, the nation's largest teachers union with almost 3 million educators, unveiled its latest survey. It showed that 90% of members say feeling burned out is a serious problem. 80% said unfulfilled job openings have led to more work obligations. 55% said they plan to leave education sooner than planned because of the pandemic. That's up from 37% from August of last year. The president of the Duval Teachers Union, Terry Brady, said it's not a single issue that's causing teachers to walk away. It's a multiple issue that's triggering, I think, a lot of the resignations and early retirements. It's, yes, it's the pandemic, not feeling safe. Second of all, it turns around and there's so many absentees or vacant positions. Our current teachers that are in the classroom are, are voluntarily giving up their planning times to cover classes or we don't have enough subs. Governor Ron DeSantis has pushed to increase teacher pay in recent years and raised the starting salary to help recruit more teachers. But the Florida Teachers Union leader says increasing pay for new classroom teachers alone isn't enough to fix the issue. We really need to see a lot more movement in giving districts and, and unions the ability to negotiate fair raises for everyone who works in our schools because here's what we know. We have over four thousand vacancies currently still existing in our schools in the state of Florida among our teachers. And we have nearly 5,000 or just over 5,000 vacancies among our support staff. And so we have to address this crisis. The State Board of Education. So consider you've got that in Florida. In New Mexico, the governor there actually called the National Guard in to help with uh, in schools because they're just short staffed. There are not enough teachers. There are not enough subs. There's not enough like staff period in the school systems, which is just remarkable. So maybe if they focused on that instead of these kind of uh, things that are much more attractive, right? People are much more tuned into, oh, my child can or cannot have a mask or my child can or cannot be vaccinated. And you're missing the forest for the trees. The real problem is kids are not being educated at the level that they should be. And ultimately, that ends to the demise of the American economy 
and the country as a whole. So long game, long game, long game. All right. So moving over to national news, I want to update you on something we've talked about on the pod before. The groundswell of unionizing and striking that's been happening across the country. So I mentioned that Starbucks tried to break up unionizing efforts at a store in upstate New York. Now there are more than 80 stores across the country that have started unionizing efforts. Now that's small, right? I mean, Starbucks has thousands of stores, but it shows that this movement is growing. Now there is one store here in Atlanta, uh, the one right off of Howell Mill by the interstate, that's also part of this effort. Another one, uh, workers at the New York REI. Now, if you don't know, REI is kind of like a hippie out, like a hipster hippie outdoorsy store. So that's where you go to get camping equipment, to go get your kayak, like that kind of stuff. They are looking to unionize. And what's interesting to me about this one, because kind of like Starbucks, REI has always presented itself as a progressive pro-worker company, uh, but the company is pushing back, uh, and which is not a surprise if you remember that this is a capitalistic society, uh, but folks you know, thought REI would take a different approach to unionization. So the CEO of REI and the company's diversity officer had a podcast, was just really just recorded a conversation between the two of them talking about the union effort. Now, what particularly piqued my interest about this is that it was the company's DEI person. They're a diversity and equity person. That woman is, her name is Wilma Wallace. She's a, she's African-American. She's their general counsel. She's brilliant, like super smart. Um, and she's also their DEI and sustainability executive. So why her? Why did they have her do this and not the chief HR person, which would make a lot more sense. But so it raises the eyebrow, and I think it diminishes the power of what a DEI person can do by trying to make them be part of the face of an anti-union conversation. So of strikes, uh, there are around 300 concrete workers in Seattle who are striking over medical benefits. And because of their striking, the State Department of Transportation, that's Washington State, said that it's causing at least five major projects to be delayed, which in turn means other people aren't getting paid. So King County, that's where Seattle is, they are trying to find a, an interesting solution to this. So they said the county is going to hire a concrete company for over the course of three years. They're going to handle $30 million worth of projects. The catch is that company has to have unionized workers. And so what's happening again here in Seattle is that these 300 concrete workers have like pulled, like caused a stop of major projects because they want better medical benefits, which I mean, this is America. You really need strong medical benefits. Uh, and for whatever reason, folks aren't budging, but I suspect that will change soon. Uh, and then another kind of interesting strike thing that occurred last month, 8,000 workers at a Kroger-owned chain in Colorado went on strike last month, but they did end up coming to an agreement. So we don't hear a lot about, I bring this up on the podcast because we just don't hear a lot about unionizing and striking in mainstream media. And I think it's something you should pay attention to. 
Um, which kind of leads me to my next point. A few episodes ago, I mentioned that the Biden administration was going to raise the minimum wage for federal contractors to $15 an hour. So that did go into effect at the end of January. And now the previous minimum wage for federal contractors was $11.25. Now, by the way, just as a reminder, the federal minimum, minimum wage, meaning if you're not a federal employee, is $7.25. Georgia's minimum wage is $5.15. Yeah, I hope, I, I don't know the numbers on how many people are actually getting $5.15, but I suspect it's very, very low. So these federal contractors, um, they also have to pay staff overtime wages if they make, if they work more than 40 hours a week. And then if you're a tipped employee, uh, you have to get paid at least $10.50 an hour. So Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi are suing the Biden administration because of this. They're suing about this increase, and they're saying that it's going to cause inflation and lead to job losses. So part of their issue is that some of these companies that are hired by the feds, they're mad because they're also subject to this. So let's say that you're a company that runs a whitewater rafting uh, experience, but it's on federal land, right? You would have to pay your people $15 an hour. And so you got thousands of companies that are pissed off about this. So we have private companies operating private businesses on federal land. Yeah. So it's, it's like having a government contract, right? Gotcha. So it's kind of like you think of an airport concessionaire, you go in there, it's you're on you're not on, you're, you're on their property, but you're operating a business for them. So the companies are pissed off because they're having to pay their workers way more than what they previously paid them. And it's not like you're going to get an increase in business, right? So the flip side of this is the companies, you know, the companies are going to do whatever they need to do to keep profits high. So if I have to incur extra cost, then I'm going to pass that cost on to the consumer. Right. And so this is, I think, a question of trade-offs and fairness. And it's one that we need to have as a country generally. So I think most folks would agree that a worker should receive a living wage. But at the same time, folks don't want to have to pay more for goods and services. And then the company, the top folks at the company, don't want to bring home anything less. Right. So if I got a $50,000 bonus every year, why should I have to only get that reduced to a $20,000 bonus because you're getting paid more money? So no one wants to give in just a smidge. So <laughs> what a conundrum. Um, now, another thing I want to talk about, this story is actually old. It's about a month old, but I just hadn't heard about it. And I was like, you know what? This is a good thing to talk about on the pod especially in light of this whole thing about companies complaining about a $15 minimum wage. So you remember the Paycheck Protection Plan or program? This was $800 billion in federal funds giving to businesses to make sure that we weren't going to have massive unemployment at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Remember, everything shut down. And so either a business didn't have any uh, customers because they, they couldn't operate or they had an influx of customers and influx of, of sales. Let me give you a prime example of that. 
our overlords and Amazon. They had record sales during the pandemic. So in April of 2021, Amazon reported an increase of 220% from the same period last year. So Jeff Bezos, why is my Amazon Prime subscription going up by 17%? Just so you can go terraform on Mars? Okay, anyway, sorry, back to the <laughs> back to the program here. So the National Bureau of Economic Research, this is a bunch of economists, they issued a report last month. And it was basically like, how did the PPP program go? Was it worthwhile? What are the lessons learned? And the gist of it, no surprise, unfortunately, is that it was a very, very nice stimulus for the well-off. Much more than that one-off, or what, I think we got two checks from the federal government during the at the beginning of the pandemic. So here are some highlights from the report. They said that uh, this program saved about two to three million jobs of unemployment of employment over a fourteen month period. The cost for that one year of keeping a job was between 170000 to 257000 per job. That number didn't sound right to me. Uh, the other thing it said <laughs> is that only 23 to 34% of the PPP dollars went directly to workers who would otherwise have lost their job. The overwhelming majority went directly to business owners and shareholders and creditors. Uh, the majority of the loans, again, 66 to 77% did not go to paychecks, but instead to business owners and shareholders. So they did PPP and there was two tranches and then there was a third one. So the first two were in 2020. There was a third one in 2021. The first two was about 500 and it totaled about $510 billion uh, that they said we were supporting these jobs that otherwise would have lost, right? But in reality, um, a large fraction of the first two tranches, it went to businesses that would have remained viable even if they never received the money. So why did we give 500 and it was about $530 billion or so of money to businesses that didn't need it at the end of the day. Um, it's just kind of wild. Uh, another thing is um, the loans for these first two tranches were supposed to have gone to small businesses, and they were defining a small business as having fewer than 500 employees. But in reality, if you and they should have just talked to the SBA, the Small Business Association, about this, most small businesses have 50 employees or fewer. And so if you really want to do a program that helps small businesses actually separate and say, okay, here's what's a bucket for small, true small businesses, 50 employees or less, and then here's something for larger small businesses. Now, about almost 100, 94% of the loans that were issued in 2022 have been forgiven. Right. So that means they do not have they don't have to pay this money back. Um, another interesting thing about this is they said 
there was seemingly no evidence that the 2021, that last bit of money, need, boosted employment and it like it wasn't needed. And so, again, it's just, it's just kind of frustrating to see uh, after all of this how little this really did at the end of the day, considering how much money it was. So a big takeaway from this report that I hope um, our elected leaders are paying attention to in the Biden administration is that it said the United States did not have enough administrative infrastructure to actually oversee something of this big of a scale. This was a huge program. And because they were so focused on getting money out the door fast, there was just a lot of things that should have happened that did not happen, right? We know of fraud, a lot of fraud occurred, uh, but then also there was a big question about, did this money actually go to the, the businesses that needed it most? Another big takeaway, and you know, I think this is in part for me uh, inspired by the new season of Billions, which is a great show, by the way. Um, and then kind of inspired by what's happening in Canada. And I'll mention that a little bit later. Uh, and, and I just, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm speaking, this is Saba speaking in purely political terms. Um, I'm not saying this is what I would do, but if I were the female version of Steve Bannon, this is what I would do. <laughs> so if Republicans are going to make 2022 about culture wars, Democrats should make 2022 about money. What I mean by that. So it's about who has it and who doesn't. I would link Republicans to the billionaire class. These are the folks in the New York penthouses with the 200 uh, foot yachts, the three homes outside of the country, right? Oh, I'm vacationing in the south of France. Uh, and so while Republicans are trying to distract you about gay books and critical race theory, we're going to put forth policies that make sure you can actually put food on the table. Like that's the, that's the kind of energy that I would bring if I were the female Steve Bannon. And so I think if there's one thing that's going to be more motivating to someone than fear of another group, it's money. Um, so and this is kind of close to what some Democrats are already doing. AOC has kind of been uh, at that forefront. So has Katie Porter, and really calling out the billionaire class uh, for things they have done that's hurting the average person. But the Democratic Party has not embraced that on any real level. Um, so make this about uh, wealth, right? And so not, oh, we want an equal distribution of wealth. Don't say that. Even Bernie Sanders is not saying that. Uh, but it's about what is the level of fairness that we want to achieve? And so I think 80% of the public would be pretty upset to hear that 70% of the money that was supposed to help small businesses actually went to the guy with the three vacation homes. Uh, like you're supplementing his lifestyle, his, his uh, way of living. Um, and that this all happened on Trump's watch. And this happened under Republicans' watch. Uh, so you can ignore the things that Trump has said, but it's a lot harder to ignore the things he did when it comes to enriching the wealthy and doing nothing for the little guy. So that's the pitch that I would give if I were a, a bit of a villain Democrat. Now, I don't think that approach is going to happen, obviously, in this election cycle, but I do think it could happen in 2024. Um, so, which leads me to my next point about this tension, not only in the country, but also in other parts of the world, including our neighbors up north, 
Um, I've been meaning to mention this for like a couple of weeks now, but truckers, I'm sure you've heard this now, have taken siege of Ottawa, Canada. And what are they protesting about? What are these truckers upset about? Take a listen to this. Oh, <laughs> okay. Police have failed to clear a major bridge crossing between the US and Canada. It's been blocked by truckers protesting vaccine rules. Police persuaded some drivers to move their vehicles, but they later reconvened. The weekend has also brought a fresh wave of protesters into the Canadian capital, Ottawa, where a core group of truckers continue to occupy the downtown area. Taking their outrage. <laughs> to the government's doorstep. It's been over two weeks now that the Freedom Convoy has camped in the Canadian capital, Ottawa. A plan to force unvaccinated truck drivers crossing between Canada and the US to quarantine sparked the initial rally. But the demonstrators insist the blockade goes way beyond opposing the rules on inoculations. We're not here about vaccinations, and uh, I can tell you 90% of the truckers here are likely vaccinated, uh, but we're here for freedom of choice. More Canadians need to wake up and realize that our freedoms are being stripped away. It is not normal for us to wear masks all day, okay? I'm sick and tired of it. I'm a teacher. Students in their classroom, they're sick and tired of it too. Police could not move the protesters off a border crossing. It's one of the major corridors into the United States. The blockade has affected trade and travel between the two countries. It's also inspired support rallies over the border to Buffalo in New York State and as far away as New Zealand. In the Netherlands, truckers rolled through the Hague. And thousands of French police were deployed to stop the convoy of freedom from entering Paris. But some protesters made it. They took aim at vaccine passes and President Emmanuel Macron, but also tapped into the discontent over rising prices. Our rights, our freedoms are violated. We just have the right to work, to spend and to be taxed. The price of diesel increases, wheat, sugar, insurance increases, everything increases. Police cleared the streets using tear gas, but this has not ended the protests. The Freedom Convoy's next stop is the European Union's power base in Brussels. By the way, this trucker protest is spreading, which you heard, right? So it's spreading to Western Europe. And United States Senator Rand Paul said he invites this level of protest in America. Uh, now, what I find a bit hypocritical about that is, now these protests are not violent, all right? We'll, we'll make sure that's clear. Um, but they are negatively impacting the economy uh, because they're without truckers, how do you get produce? How do you get goods in uh, across borders and into your grocery stores and, and all that. Um, so it's interesting that conservatives like Rand Paul don't have a problem with that. Um, and I want to bring this up uh, and put a local spin on it and remind folks that in Atlanta, when folks were protesting after the George Floyd uh, situation, they at one point they blocked a portion of a street in front of City Hall near the Capitol and Georgia State Patrol 
arrested and jailed folks for blocking that road. And this was the middle of the day. Uh, this was certainly not an impact on commerce or any of movement or anything like that. Now, most of those folks were only jailed for a couple of hours. Um, and community organizers kind of pulled resources together to make sure they all got bailed out. Uh, but it's important to put this in context as you have a United States senator calling for American truckers to block roads and infect uh, stop commerce, and all in the name of protesting ma mask mandates. Now, and this is interesting, more than $9 million has been raised on crowdfunding site Give, Send, Go, which is a Christian crowdfunding site, I hadn't heard of this before, uh, to support the truckers. Now, the government of Ontario, Canada, uh, was granted a restraining order to stop Give, Send, Go from distributing that money. But Give, Send, Go said, we're not going to adhere to the order. And so they tweeted uh, just the other day that they are working with campaign organizers to find effective legal ways to continue the funds flowing. Now, GoFundMe also got kind of caught up in this. Uh, they, GoFundMe has kind of been, uh, you know, the, I think the border wall, that was like a big controversial one. So they decided to issue refunds to folks who donated to the truckers. So I suspect the GoFundMe uh, refunds came in and then folks went over to the Gifts and Go site and did it that way, which... I'm just really fascinated by this whole political economy that we are seeing more and more of lately. Conservatives have now built their own fundraising platforms, their own pillows. Okay, that was kind of a joke. Uh, their own social media platforms, their own podcasts, their own TV shows. And these are all platforms and tools that are explicitly in the FUBU model, right? They are for us, by us. And liberals don't really have that. I mean, I guess you can argue and say liberals have mainstream media, but only to some extent. Uh, and I not certainly not to the extent the right has kind of owned these spaces. And it's just really fascinating because you're going to end up having this full split where the left doesn't know what the right is fully doing and the right doesn't really know what the left is doing. It's just kind of fascinating. All right. So to end the show, our party starters and party poopers. So my party starter, if you were really paying attention to the first part of the podcast, this may not surprise you. It goes to Georgia Speaker of the House, David Ralston, for killing the Buckhead Cityhood bill. This gives the mayor, gives the council some time to really reset the relationship. Um, and then the other interesting thing about it and why I'm giving him a party starter award, because he refused to let this happen in an election year where it would be advantageous for Republicans for this to be on the on the vote in an election year, right? So it, it helps uh, anti-Trump Republicans, and it also helps Democrats. And it's one less thing on the ballot that energizes the Trump base. I think he was very intentional about that. Uh, our party pooper of the ward. Turn out the lights. The party's over. Party is over. Close the gates. What? All right. Party's over. Everyone go home.
Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your body? I'm the party pooper. I mentioned this in a couple of podcasts ago, um, this idea, this topic. Uh, but this week's party pooper, party pooper award goes to Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville. He came out strong against a bipartisan effort that's being pushed by Senator John Ossoff of Georgia to ban Congress from trading individual stocks. Well, why would Tuberville be against this bill? Because he is one of the worst violators of the Stock Act. He did not, or late, he was late in disclosing 132 stock trades, totaling nearly a million dollars, just under $900,000. And Tuberville says, they might as well send robots up here because we won't be able to do anything. Now, I think a lot of Americans are probably asking, well, what does Congress do anyway? Um, and by the way, Nancy Pelosi, she finally came around and said the stock ban should indeed happen. Now, remember when we last talked about this on the pod, she said she was against it. And so she has changed uh, course. But I think Nancy's very brilliant political mind. So she said she wants to expand the ban and it needs to be government wide. And so she said the judicial branch should be included. And she says this, and I quote, the Supreme Court has no disclosure. It has no reporting on stock trades, and it makes important decisions every day. Which, by the way, holy moly, members of the Supreme Court don't have to report stock transactions. Hmm. <laughs> now, I don't know if she looped in the court as a way to kill the bill, or if she's singling them out as a way to try to take heat off of Congress. I don't know. We'll see. But I think it was probably a brilliant political move on her part. All right. So that's it. That's our show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to come back next week. We'll see what happens then. See ya.